we went from, oh, wow, this is like a product that people want right now to we're going to have four months with no inventory. So things went from good to terrible pretty quickly. If there is one commonality between all the guests I talk to, it's that experimentation and constantly learning more is what makes a company grow and thrive. Andrew Gobel, the co-founder and co-CEO of Jambies, preached that concept to me on this episode of Up Next in Commerce. And we were able to dissect some of his bigger experiments to draw out insights anyone can use. For example, how should you be thinking about inventory in turbulent times? And what are some ways you can be utilizing TV ads? And why is it sometimes more important to lose a customer in the short term in order to build trust for the long term? Find out all that and more on this episode. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Very impressed with your company, very impressed with your brand. Before we get into how you built it and where you started, I actually want to kind of go back to your history, though. I know you went from like a writer to a photographer. I was looking at your LinkedIn. I'm like, oh, this is an interesting path that he kind of came to starting a company. And I was hoping we could start with that first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was a writer and photographer for starting Jambies. And honestly, I, from since I was 16, thought I was going to be a writer and photographer forever. And so I initially started my career at GQ. I was, I was an intern there while I was in college. And from there, worked there on the website, then I worked on the social team, then I worked on the magazine. And then I, I went with my boss at the time, Devin Freeman, to go work on content marketing at a uh, fintech company called Wellsimple, which is a robo-advisor in Canada. And that was kind of the start of, of me seeing like, oh, there's another way to make things creatively and try to speak to people that is not just writing fashion tips. Um, and I like both and I still do, but it, to see this world kind of like explode in front of me, this is only three or four years ago, was kind of the start of, oh, like creativity is getting valued in this place and I can contribute. But it all kind of started just writing Instagram captions, really. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, writers are in high demand right now. And, you know, any bit of creativity, I feel like every company wants. What was the moment that you were like, I actually want to do my own thing? Because I'm sure there was a lot of demand coming at you to, you know, get pulled over to someone else's company. Yeah, I, um, was reading a story that my my friend Bert is a writer and he was reporting on like the beginning of of Facebook ads and brands really starting to invest in it when they're starting a company and and the co-founder of Hubble Contacts Jesse Horwitz was interviewed in it 
And something just like as he was talking about coming up with all these concepts, trying them with iPhone footage, like I want to meet that guy. So I emailed him and he was super nice. He was like, come stop by. And he basically evangelized like direct consumer, the like power of a creative to make their own difference and gave me some kind of like throwaway Q&As to write for them just to kind of get me interested. And, And a lot of going out on my own and working as a freelancer was like Jesse connecting me to the agency he worked with and be like, hey, if you need any writing, Andrew can help. And like, hey, another brand needs photography. Why don't you give Andrew a try? And it was kind of this great introduction to a world, especially with these younger brands where someone who was an 80% good writer, a 70% good photographer, 80% good project manager, they're like, great, that's one person. And, you know, it's a lot cheaper than an agency that requires a lot of people to kind of execute with the polish they do. So it was a lot of good timing that I could kind of do a lot of things okay. And it kind of gave me a chance to try a bunch. And Jesse was always there, like giving intros and, and kind of showing me how I could use these skills in the space, which was kind of how I got so interested in it. It's nice thinking about just how much one person can kind of change the trajectory of someone's entire life. I mean, it sounds like that's exactly what he did when he came in, started giving intros, letting you try out new skills and also, you know, building up a reputation by saying, yep, he's worked for me before. It went great. You should try it too. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're looking back, like it takes a few of those conversations to like really make you feel like welcome in a space. And now I feel like I follow so many people on Twitter in the space and you kind of get this advice, you know, maybe one thing a day. You're like, that's great. Jesse was kind of like, here's, you know, a two page memo I have for new hires. That's like, what are the metrics we care about? What are the things we should focus on early? You know, how do we think about creative and you're just like really open in that. And I always think about that when I, you know, you sometimes get emails from people and they're not like super polished or they're kind of just like, can I pick your brain? And I'm like, oh wait, that was me. Yeah. (laughs) Not that long ago. Like just having patience with people. It's like, you know, it's a hard space to get into. And the more I can at least share a like, here's what I share with someone new joining Jambies. Um, I was trying to remember a lot of people did that for me. Yeah, that's that's great. So it sounds like that two pager, like new hire handbook left an impression on you. What are some of the things that you remember from there? Uh, Because I think, you know, that's great. Every company should maybe think about what they should have in that. But I'm guessing you also kind of took some of those pointers and put them in your own kind of handbook. So like, what are the things that stood out to you from there that you maybe took with you? Yeah, for me, it was a lot of this, like, sounds kind of silly, but this basic idea of, of scale in that, like, a lot of these advertising platforms could start small, could be tested easily, that you could try a hundred things, sometimes for like, you know, $5 each, but that if one of them worked, you could build something that was like significant and at scale. And I, I think that idea of like, we're working here, kind of experimenting was different from the type of creative I worked on. I was usually in like the lowest role of a production of a photo shoot that like was the definition of polish. And it's like the stylists were like the best of what they do. The photographers are best of what they do. And you'd end up with four images. And to see how like they thought of like the importance of iterating and these things are like ongoing and try whatever was a different way of thinking about how you're making stuff. What are you making it for? What it, even what is a successful piece of creative on Facebook? Like, is it a high click-through rate? Is it a low CPM? Is it, you know, a low CPA? Like, I didn't even know what a lot of those acronyms meant. And so I'd be like, I'm going to like dig in here and just think about how you make stuff so differently. I think that's great. And then in kind of in the same note, I ended up later having a discussion. We were first starting Jambies with Zach Raitano, who's one of the founders of Roe. And he has kind of like a medium post about basic direct consumer metrics. And it made me realize 
I like could talk the talk, but I couldn't walk the walk. I was like, oh, that's actually, <laughs> these are things that you like, you can't just say like, ah, oh, low CPA, great. Like everything is a trade-off and there's, you know, being thoughtful is, is so important. And so those two things were, were so helpful. It's kind of like a Bible to be like, if these people are focusing on these things, then maybe I'll start there. Yep. How did you go about learning about those and making sure you actually could, you know, understand it well enough to implement it in your own company? I think to start, it was just knowing that if you made something and it was bad, you would know quickly. Like that, that kind of like that failure actually wasn't super expensive. Gave, gave Jack and I, when we were first starting Jambies, and I remember before we had a product, I wouldn't advise this now, but we, I took a photo of Jack with like a white, the back of a poster I had in my apartment in our first sample. And we just put it online and we're like, boxers of the pockets or shorts you can wear commando or like super soft sleep shorts. And we just were like seeing what worked. And, you know, we'd get, we had a little fill out form on our website. I'm not even sure we were called Jambies at this point, but that we could even use it to like validate a little bit of an idea. I think someone commented like within an hour, like, why the heck would my boxers need pockets? And we're like, great. There's something here that like, we thought that was like a interesting, you know, tension. And when we wore them, we we're like, oh, actually this is, well, it'll be interesting. But it was interesting to see like, you know, when, when people like have strong feelings anyway. It's a good thing. At such an early stage, we're like, oh, now I realize it's a good thing. At the beginning, we're like, oh, shoot, are we, are our parents going to be mad at us <laughs> that we quit <laughs> what we were doing to sell boxers with pockets? But yeah, it was cool that we, that we could use it in this validation stage. And we still do when I'm like thinking of a new direction for messaging or new audience. In the past, I would have thought that this is like, let me put together a presentation and like a plan to implement it. Now it's like, hey, TJ, can I try this copy on this ad? Um, and if it kind of works, then we'll try something again. So yeah, that we can kind of even use it to shape our messaging is, is so helpful. Yeah, I feel like especially now with things changing so quickly, like you have to be willing to be able to experiment quickly, see what's working, pivot away from something that's not. Before we go any further, though, I do want you to tell people, for anyone who has not had the amazing experience of wearing Jambies, what are Jambies? What do you sell? And what's different about them? So we make performance inactive wear, uh, which is what we call it. And we started with the brand is called Jambies. Our first product, also called Jambies, was boxers with pockets. And the, and the whole idea came from my co-founder, Jack, when he was like 10 years old. His sisters would steal boxers or buy them from the men's section. And we were getting phones, you know, around that time for the first time. Nowhere to put it. So simple. I want to wear boxers around the house. They should have pockets. 20 years later, he he left his job and he kind of said to me, like, I'm doing this no matter who's with me. This has like become a personal thing. I want to bring to life at least one pair of boxers with pockets. And so we started with that. And and since then, what, what we've kind of found is that building products like that lead into sitting, working from home, being in indoor temperatures allows us to do a lot of things that you can't do when it also needs to be good for running or also needs to be good for going on a date or going to work or whatever. And so now all of our products are built around kind of this the same fabric, which is built 95% modal, 5% spandex. So soft. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were talking about this before and it's like the fabric was the first thing that we were like, oh, that's an anchor. We were, were like, is it always going to be, are we going to get boxes of pockets brand? And it was like, no, the fabric is our anchor. Let's go find the best people to take that even further and kind of build around that pretty basic thing. Just let's go develop great fabrics. So what did that 
process look like? I mean, to me, when I felt the fabric, I was like, okay, why haven't more companies used this fabric? And I was like, I don't even know what Modal is. I've never even really seen that. So like, how did you go about finding this and yeah, bring, bring it into uh, where it is today? Yeah, you know, it's a little bit of luck. I'd, I'd worked a lot with fabrics. I used to do some like product reviewing, which was a great way to get your hands on like, you know, 50 pairs of underwear. And Modal is, is pretty similar to cotton. It's harvested from beechwood trees and like kind of condensed into a pulp that then gets spun into a natural fiber. You see it a lot in like sleep shirts and underwear because it's like naturally so breathable and soft. But we were kind of rashing around making our first pair of boxes pockets and we're getting samples from anyone who'd respond to an email. And one company kind of specialized in Modal or Modal blends. And they were like, this one is a little thicker than what you asked for, but you know, I think you'll like it. And that for us, we were like, okay, this feels really soft in this like French chair. It just feels like nothing we'd ever felt before. So we got 10 samples made out of that. And I feel like that was the first set of samples where like, usually my friends would like try it on and be like, Hey, can I give it back to you? And this was the first where it's like, people are kind of tucking it in their purse on the way out the door. And we were like, Oh, this is what it's going to be all about for us. Less like features and function. And like, let's just invest in, in great fabric. But it was kind of an accident. I remember like feeling this little four inch by four inch swatch. And you're trying to picture like, what's that like as a boxer? And and we we stuck with it, which is smart. I probably would not be here talking about it today if we'd picked the swatch that was one before it. That's great. So you've got your product, you've got your fabric. What did it look like next to drum up interest in a new company? And yeah, what were the next steps? Yeah, so Jack and I, when we started, fundraising really wasn't in the cards. So for us, it was, you know, to kind of like, I stayed working at my job freelance two days a week. Jack used some some savings he had from his previous job. And we probably took on some ill-advised credit cards. But the whole thing was like, let's make a thousand and we'll know a lot more than if we sit here and think for three months or whatever. So we originally made the sample, like I took my favorite basketball shorts and Jack's favorite pair of boxers to a sample maker in, in Manhattan. And he made us like a couple, like this one's more like a basketball short, more like a boxer. And once we got one, we liked, we found kind of a factory in downtown LA that specialized in like new upcoming brands, small runs. And they kind of walked us through a lot of these steps now that we were, were kind of skipping, you know, getting a basic like tech pack, a drawing of what you're actually going to cut out, how it's going to get sewn together. And once we got that, we were, the clock was kind of ticking. Jack just flew to LA and stayed in the hotel next door to it and was basically there for eight hours a day, like calling me. And we were like Googling terms, you know, like, what theme do you want here? And we'd be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know there were different themes available um, at this stage. And while we were doing it on the product side, the goal was like, what's the most lightweight way we can sell, like transact this product? Because we knew it was going to be a lot of friends and family to start. And I, I grew up in Kansas City. Our first six models, four of them were just people from Kansas City that lived in LA. I was like, I'll give you $150 or $400 gift card, whatever you prefer. And we photographed it in in one of my photographer friend's studio. And I think we did that on Friday and launched like three days later. So it was, it was, wow. I don't know if I, I probably would look at the old website, like through my hands now, like I'd be a little ashamed, but I also, um, I'm glad we did it that way. Cause it was the things we thought were going to stick or be important were so different from what customers, both why they bought it, why they commented on the Instagram. And, and ultimately, you know, we texted all of them, tell us everything you think, why they liked it. 
we couldn't have done that, you know, just sitting talking because we were so wrong about why that was. Yep. Are there any funny stories of kind of like, you know, early days starting up, anything that comes to mind where you're like, looking back on it now, it's funny. Maybe it wasn't at the time, but. Yeah. We like stopped needing coffee. It's just like the stress was just enough to keep us on 10. One of us was at the time. (laughs) Yeah, we were just, we were like buzzing on fear, terror, basically. And I remember like, I love working on my own and kind of, you know, seeing what I can do on my own. And I was a bad communicator. And I remember being like, we're going to launch on October 1st. And I told Jack like a week before, I was like, I'm going to turn around the images. It'll be great. And somewhere in the process, we didn't realize that not all of our products were going to be done, but like the first 200 of a thousand were going to be done. So we're like looking at this laptop. We, I also said we're launching at 9 a.m., but we we're on the West Coast. So we woke up at 4 a.m., went to Phil's Coffee because, I don't know, first thing we Googled, launched this thing. We're having like all of our friends like come. They're sharing on their Instagram story. Like Jack has this, you know, captivating thing about him where like people from like his middle school were like seeing his Instagram, buying it and then posting that they bought it. Like so many people wanted this wow. dream he'd had for 20 years. That's impressive. Yeah. And Jack's earned it just because he's the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. And it was like, spreading it so we're seeing like this is so cool that we walked into the factory and we're like oh crud <laughs> like they're, they are like in the middle of making this and like everyone's working hard and there's a lot of people but it, it was a lot of like hey mom like you're getting your jambies a week from now because we're filling out everything that we can before that and then after that we kind of were like let's great we were able to do this in two months you know all the clothing apparel people we talked to have been like, this is kind of a 12 to 18 month process. And we were like, well, look at us. And we like soon learned why it was more of a pilot than an actual thing, because we didn't have the fabric. Like, you know, Jack had been running, taking bolts of white fabric to dye houses, having them dye it a color. It wasn't quite perfect, but okay, whatever. To go recreate that and make the next thousand, we basically need to go to a new factory. Oh, so they were more like a startup factory, like get your beta product out there and then move along and find someone who can support more quantities. Yeah, exactly. Like the the margins are probably not sustainable forever for us to, you know, get it to a a large market of people. And so we found this like really helpful guy who connected us to a factory in Mexico. And we were like, oh, this is so easy. You just like list a color or a print. I was like, let's do a Christmas wavy stripe on this new thing, new fabric mill, new factory, whatever. We got this whole Excel sheet that says how to cut this thing. And it was just from the second we knew uh, that we should not have told people we're selling Christmas jambies. And without indicting ourselves, it was like, it was a hustle to get them through customs to get them to Jack and I on a table where we were printing things out and writing things so much like in the worst handwriting ever. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think Jack has been often like having a lot of jambies under the seat of his car or in a luggage thing, you know, flying somewhere and being like, well, let's hope no one asks why I have yeah. 200 boxes of pockets and my two pieces of luggage because we, you know, we had to get it done. Sometimes you make long-term plans and you kind of set yourself up for failure. This was like a plan we made and immediately the next day we're like, this was stupid. <laughs> this yep. is this is going to require Jack to be really hustling with, with people we've never worked with before. Mm-hmm. And he did it. Well, I you know I tried to like set up basic ads and photos here, and that was a huge asset. Is that like I could kind of get things eighty percent good here, while Jack every new element of the business he just like dug in, found a person who could guide us on it, and somehow got it across to us. That's great. I mean, I'm guessing you're not working with the factory in Mexico anymore. Then we are not. I guess unrelated, but related was we we launched in October of 2019. 
And then as factory search shut down because of COVID in March, they shut down. And the only thing that they were allowed to make like was like with 10% of the people, they can make masks. So we're like, okay. But at the same time, our first day running ads was, I think, the same day that uh, New York got shut down. And so we're making this like indoor only product for the first time. And people are like responding to it. And we were, we were donating to New York Food Bank for every sale. And long story short, we only had like so many pairs. We sold out within like three weeks. And then we're like, great, they'll make more. And we're like, they can't make more. Great. Someone else make more. No one else was taking new tiny clients on to like do this thing that takes eight months. So really, we went from, oh, wow, this is like a product that people want right now to we're going to have four months with no inventory. So things went from good to terrible pretty quickly. And by no means, I think a lot of businesses, like we're thing that people wanted at that time, which is such a blessing, but we were poorly timed to, you know, make the most of that opportunity. And in fact, when the factory was like, we'll be able to make stuff a few months down the line, but we have clients making 300,000 blank t-shirts and they're going to come first. So if you want to see when we can make some room for you, we kind of knew we had to look elsewhere, did some fundraising at that point, but kind of spending a third of your year without sales, it was like, this is back on. We need to go figure something else out. And our, our kind of game plan was like, well, if we can't salvage this year, let's develop our t-shirt, like our long jambies, our pant and our house city. And let's just like pray that they arrive sometime in October and let's do whatever we can to make the last three months of the year something so we can keep doing this without having to like raise unnecessary capital or anything like that. So it went from good to awesome to terrible quickly, which is probably something good we learned early. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. What did you do when thinking about those couple months? Like, what did you do when it came to customers who maybe had orders? Or how did you kind of keep up communication with them so you didn't have to, you know, essentially rebuy new customers all over again because of that gap? Like, what did it look like other than working on the product and kind of working behind the scenes? What did you do customer facing? Yeah, there was like a kind of 30 days where it was like, if you're this certain size or want the orange pair, it's available to you. (laughs) Um, Pre-order, we don't know when it's going to happen. Like I've seen some like young entrepreneurs kind of like err on the side of shrugging and being like, what's up with the pre-order? We were like, let's make sure this product is arriving. I think there was one case where like we didn't know it was going to be four months right away. It was like a month in. Oh no, like it's still not open. Like, of course, um, that makes sense. And we kind of kept going. And I think at one point we had a pre-order where we'd said it was two weeks and ended up being like 
close to a month. And for us, it was like, let's just like either scrap it or tell them that like, we'll give them double the amount of product whenever we get it. And it was like, if you're acquiring these customers and using ads, like the worst thing you can do is like leave them in a negative experience. And so we're always like, great. These customers are no longer customers that will generate any profit for us, but they won't be mad because we messed up here. And everyone, I, I think for the most part, everyone's so accommodating knowing like, you know, they didn't want you to bust into like a factory and start sewing things yourself either. And everyone's safety was obviously way more important than some boxes of pockets. And Jack still, I think, wakes up at 6 a.m. and knocks out a lot of our customer service today, just because I think for us, it's like things don't always go right. But I, I think there's a way that every customer can leave being like, OK, well, they've at least told me and and tried to make it as good as they can. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely seen a lot of examples over the past two years of the companies who have over communicated. And even though maybe things didn't go perfectly, there were not angry customers versus the other side. I mean, you've seen big blow ups, especially on Twitter with really angry customers who just didn't know what was going on and always better to over communicate for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we've like, I think, learned about this, like kind of preemptively communicating. Sometimes you tell a customer like, hey, you know, this thing was on back order for five days, but it's actually going to be the next Monday. And a lot of times they're like, oh, I didn't really think about it because a lot of people are just saying like, hey, ships, whenever. And like, hey, we don't even have it in our factory. So I think at first we're like, oh, we'll just talk to the customers that reach out to us and let them know like, hey, can do full refund. Like this is the date we think, but it's hard to trust any, you know, delivery carrier. They're so overloaded. It was like learning to over communicate and starting to, you know, if any orders still out after X amount of days, kind of depending on the time period, just to reach out and be like, we can just do a full refund. And when that happened, a lot of those customers ended up coming back at a different time, which is kind of the great thing. It's like, great, we're not going to just like keep this money out of your bank account while we wait to see what what happens with this next piece of cargo. Like, let's just do this when when it feels good. And sometimes that's, that's felt painful being so small. But I think even just a year later, you see how important that is. And that customers can trust that like, they're going to get what we said they would get for what they paid, which sounds so simple, but I think a lot of brands are not fulfilling that promise right now. Mm -hmm. I agree. How do you think about now with everything you went through and, you know, a lot of other companies have gone through something similar. How are you viewing, you know, keeping cash on hand or like future proofing your company? Like what are maybe some adjustments you've made after all that happened to maybe change how you operate in business? Yeah, I think um, where a lot of brands at some level maturity, like cash flow matters a lot and is kind of like a great lever to work for us it, it was knowing like an example of like certain products in certain colorway you want to keep 90 days on hand for us it was like especially going into the end of last year it was like let's have 25 percent more inventory and actually sacrifice kind of the cash flow to avoid the risk of like having to like randomly fly stuff in or have delays um, we were willing to pay for like some level of consistency because I just thought like if existing customers come to the site two or three times and there's always like, you know, just a few things in their size or everything's with the two week delay, like they'll learn like when I want something, I'm going to go somewhere else. And it's like we kind of learned that we would rather like have that consistency. And then when, you know, we saw a great opportunity with an influencer post or we were featured on like the Today Show, like we didn't have to hustle to make it work. We kind of had 
the amount of jambies sitting there to, to make something happen. So we often think of inventory kind of like how much do we want to like account for those possibly good things to happen and how much we want to protect against bad things. And we've not always been successful at that, but I think we've finally gotten to a stage where it's like, great, there's going to be interest in a large pair of black jambies for a long time. Like we, we let's not like try and be so smart in the Excel sheet that we kind of miss, miss out on opportunities or, or let down our customers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I think a lot of companies are definitely reassessing how they thought about, you know, what to have on hand and how to protect their company. And in a way, it was kind of like some of these shakeups might have actually been helpful because some companies were running way too close to, you know, like no inventory, not planning things out well enough. Like things were just going all well everywhere that you didn't have to plan for much. And I think sometimes shakeups like this can actually help people think differently about, okay, maybe I want to actually do operations completely differently. Maybe I want to manufacture somewhere completely different kind of gives you new options that you didn't see before, which can be helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we just learned like mastering inventory and demand forecasting does not make a great business, but it is fundamental. You could have the world's best ad, but it doesn't matter if you don't have sizes to sell. And for us, it was like, okay, there's people who know how to do this. And it was like bringing on um, like experts. I think one massive advantage for us being so young and you know spending 90% of the business in the middle of a pandemic is that there are a lot of like great contractors who can kind of set up systems and like help us think about things and you're like oh yeah why was i like watching youtube trying to master demand forecasting one it's a skill that requires decades of experience and two my brain's just never going to get there but like every time we'd have these meetings since like the first hour we're like we should have done this 6 months ago and having a, a you know a merchandise planner, demand forecaster, even just someone to challenge me, it's like, what you're buying a lot of pink jambies for no reason, and I'm like, oh, I just like the color, and like, that's a good point. It was a great check for us in a way for us. I think still at our stage where we're still very much growing. Yeah, I, I think some of these brands have maturity, like they can really understand what's December 2024 going to look like. For us, it's like could look like a lot of things, which is exciting, but got to be a little more nimble. Yep. So what kind of platforms or advertising methods are you most excited about right now? I was reading about you guys experimenting with Roku and Shoppable TV, which is, you know, a very cool area that a lot of people are interested in. But I also, I think I saw you a lot on Instagram too, and maybe having some influencers here and there. So like, what are you maybe most excited about for this coming year? Yeah, uh, I guess to start on the TV front, we were kind of like a beta partner with Roku. And it basically approximated something like a Facebook ads manager, like a self-serve platform for TV. And I think huge advantage of Roku is like having information from the hardware about the customer, not that we really used it in any like optimizing content way, but just to know like, did this actually do anything? Now that that did this actually do anything question can get answered in TV. There's like so many advantages from a content platform. Um, you know, Facebook and Instagram, you're paying for someone whether they make it one second or all the way through TV, like you have a chance for a brand like us. We want all those 30 seconds to be like, listen, I know box of the pockets are crazy, but they're so soft and they're unisex. They come in all these cuts, like blah, 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 blah. And in Instagram, I think some of the best direct response marketers, like one thing, one problem, slam it, make it um, super interesting to see. And I think we knew where we wanted to be and how we wanted the brand to be positioned long-term that TV worked great for us. We've expanded our efforts there more just because I think 
you know, if you're thinking of like true top of funnel on Facebook or YouTube, like this can kind of hit that now with enough attribution that when we, you know, keep everything the same, but start a TV experiment, we can kind of see what's happening. And for me, it's kind of like, I always can kind of picture new fun commercials to work on with like people I used to work with for TV. And I'm still like learning how to keep thinking and keep being strong when it comes to to some of these channels that don't always reward like great brand stuff. You know, it's not agency portfolio website stuff, which is always like, great. That was really funny. No one knows it's from Doritos. But I think on TV, when it's done right, has this opportunity to be like, they're on the couch. We're telling them about clothes for their couch. And we get 30 seconds to like, give it, like give it our best and, ma- and try and make it enjoyable, um, which you just don't get anywhere on your phone, which makes sense. Yeah. I think uh, when thinking about TV, I mean, people are a lot more focused, I would say, like Instagram, Facebook, like People are so in just scrolling past things now. And with TV, it's like usually whether you want to watch something or not, like it's kind of like it's there. I'll just sit through it. And, you know, I don't even know where the remote's at. And I'm kind of focused on it. Oh, and now it's actually an interesting commercial. Okay, I'll watch it and check it out. So I think a lot of people are sleeping on that channel, though. Like, I don't, I don't think enough people are testing it out. And yeah, why do you think that is? I mean, I think it was just the cost to experiment up until very recently were so high. Like, I don't think a lot of small brands are like, oh, I'm going to like take this 50k minimum needed for this this network to try anything and so for us like roku was a big opportunity to do that and you know in the beta like we had some of the stuff that you would get as a bigger client like getting their experience and expertise on like try this channel or this slot i think the reason we started there and then moved to linear tv with with tatari media buyer was like that we had confidence from this smaller test that the creative was working Oh, like the IFC network during the day, like movie watching Jambies, a lot of like shared space, like that works. And then when the bets got bigger and there was like a little less like, you know, clarity on like you're kind of putting out, you know, in an auction, you don't always know what you're getting at what price. I think we needed that like self-serve, like where we were in there trying different things and getting really quick feedback. Like, oh, that creative, that place, zero goose egg. And I think something that Rob, the growth director, head of marketing at, at Roman, I was listening to podcasts like talking about that you kind of have to have a test big enough that you know when it fails. And I think a lot of the year I was kind of like, oh, let's try $2,000 in TikTok ads or like, let's try this influencer for $800. And together with lots of bets can tell you something about a channel. Ron, a lot of them, we'd kind of do it and be like, um... Okay, let's put a pin in that. I'm clear. <laughs> yeah, and like you, yeah, failure should be like, uh-oh. Like, <laughs> like, you're like, if I, I want the eject shoot right now. And so I, that, all this to say, we we were not, um, I was not super thoughtful about testing and what success would look like, what failure would look like, which makes it really hard to go in those. And And for us, we've just kind of decided like, there's someone who's really good at this channel and let's do it right with them and make sure we have money to do a test. And then at the very least, we'll have a closed door, which can be helpful when there's so many shiny objects. You're like, great, this works for us. This is the one. This doesn't work as well. Yeah. You know, at our size, like you only need one or two wins to really get a chance to keep growing. Mm -hmm. What were some of maybe the surprising pieces of data that you got that you were like, oh, I actually didn't even realize I would get that with this channel. And then also what did the results look like compared to, you know, other tests you were running? Yeah. Through Roku, we were getting actual like 
conversion data from you know boxes that match the email of where they're purchasing. And now through linear TV, we kind of do it's not you know perfect pixel level measuring though that doesn't work either now. But you were kind of getting a sense when we were willing to experiment big enough, like okay, what are the ten minutes after that commercial look like in terms of traffic and conversions relative to the ten minutes before it, and then when we really were like doing our first experiment, which they like pushed us to do a little more spend, it made it a lot easier to track. Like, and then how do the other elements of the business, like how does Facebook retargeting grow? How does Google search grow? How does direct grow? And a lot of the TV buyers kind of use like a, if this happened in the first 10 minutes, we guess that that's probably going to like double or 2.2 over the next 30 days. And that Anytime you're trusting a number that's not found on anything, it can be spooky. But we tested an environment where we could clearly see, like, okay, for the most part, that is true. Like, the tide lifts when we when we run this much. And I think on the creative side, we were measuring just because we weren't spending a ton. Like, when you can't optimize off conversions, you kind of have to optimize off add to cart. And when you can't optimize off add to cart, you're kind of optimizing like, who thought this was worth looking up. And so I think we learned some interesting creative things that now we kind of keep my, my goal for this year is to like introduce a lot of creative that's TV focused, but right now we can have two that perform similarly, which is nice because we can do a lot of channel exploration and not worry like, Oh, is this just a creative channel time fit that we doesn't scale? Um, it would be nicer if I had more creative, but the the downside I think of linear TV is that it can be pretty difficult to get that stuff and get it right, which we were lucky that we kind of had creative that I felt confident putting on TV. Um, and I'm, but I'm seeing brands now do UGC on TV and I'm like, that looks pretty cool. Yeah. Like that's, that's the biggest I've ever seen a TikTok. That That's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, how do you think about creating content for TV? Like what are the differences there or how should a new company be thinking about that? Yeah. Um, one, having a really clear goal. I think a, a lot of TV people use it to feed brand awareness for other channels. Like I think for us, it was like, at first, we didn't want to do that. We're like, I think we're at a low enough spend that we can find places where we're converting and getting the name out there. So kind of a compromise for us was to use, we used our two best ads on Facebook that we shot, fortunately, in a way that could kind of stretch to 16 by nine. And to Tari advised that we just put jambies in the corner, the little watermark. So we were like, okay, we know even if someone just looks up or they go to the bathroom, come back, like, okay, jambies. That brain awareness, where we were at, where we're still at, can only go up. Like that is a great little intangible residual win. But those ads, we know, like kind of solicit a direct response. They tell you like one is like this voiceover that just goes through all these clips, shows you men and women in different like situations in all the products. It's really like you'll find something to be like, ooh, like blue pants. Like I'm going to go check that out. And I think that is different than I think when a lot of people come into TV ads and they kind of have like a YouTube playlist of like best Super Bowl ads ever. And it's like those companies have different objectives and also are not price sensitive. So if you try and make the world's funniest ad with sync in it, it's never going to work. It's not because small brands aren't clever enough. It's because it's just totally different objectives. And I think I got to see, you know, from some other founders that had, had success on TV that you could kind of take angles or approaches that would work as, you know, digital ads and kind of like shape them. Maybe the visuals get a little bigger, they get a little higher production because it kind of matches the TV. But then, like I said, I think other people I see like Vori runs a really effective ad that has like 
it looks a lot like an Instagram ad where like the product flat lay comes on a background. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so used to seeing this stuff on my phone. I'm not like, that's not a TV yeah. caliber ad. I'm like, and I mean, a lot of their clips also look great, but you're like, oh, that does look like they took a great Instagram ad and turned it into a TV ad. And mm-hmm. Roman does that too effectively sometimes where I'm like, oh, I do like this. Like, it's kind of cool to see like something on your phone, text flying in, logos everywhere, products spinning around, like that stuff you don't, haven't seen on TV, um, feels kind of fresh on there. So all this to say, seems like a lot works to not answer your question at all. But I, I think the thing you get is um, you don't have to constantly earn their attention, which is true of other ads where it's like everything is a chance to, for them to slip out because I don't know, same way I'm on my phone. Like I, I don't think I watch a lot of ads to completion. Um, and I think with TV, you get a different opportunity to think like the beginning, middle and end don't necessarily all have to be like as sticky as possible they can just tell the best story in kind of aggregate which is uh, basic storytelling but after never having worked on tv ads i was like oh yeah yeah i can see why this works that's that's the difference yeah exactly that's great so what are you most excited about in the next year or so are there any like secret projects you're working on moonshot experiments you're you know not sure if they're going to pay off anything that's a little bit crazy that you're excited about yeah. I mean, on, on the product side, I feel like we're committed to like investing in product development and like the right team. The long-term vision of the company is to make a lot of really awesome clothes. And I think then it's kind of like, once we get that sorted out, one, the product sells itself. Like no, there's nothing that matches that little extra effort in picking the right stitch for the collar. But then I think gives us a bigger like foundation to like take these bigger shots. Like I think we get a lot of questions on like why we're not on TikTok. And it's like, well, there's four of us like who's and no one wants to see me on TikTok. So I don't know. I kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I'm, I can find a kind of a niche demographic of people who want nervous uh, Kansans. Yeah, I think it's like picking our shots on the advertising side is also like you forget a lot of these things require so much production to make them work. A compromise that we decided we would make early is like I can make ads in After Effects. And I have a lot of friends that can support freelance and like, we'll make this painful and a little bit slower than I think it could be so that we can like get, you know, our apparel team is like people who've worked at Nike, Lululemon, Outdoor Voices, like people who've developed the fabrics that we were like, oh my God, one day we want to make something like this. Like we have really focused on like letting them build this out and invest in it. And so when it comes to secret projects, a lot of what we call the Jambies Lab I think you probably saw the product, the Cozy Cloak we came out with in November. We want to do more of that. Like, I think we want to make totally new garments and not be afraid of, they're not for 90% of of the world, but they do actually function great. And I think I've had just like to be in these Zooms where we're talking about like foot pockets with like people who've designed like some of my like favorite soccer jerseys of all time. And you're like, they're like thinking, they're like, oh, well, like this isn't, I'm used to designing running clothes, but sitting is kind of like, they're showing me like, you know, joints and where the friction points are and how this hoodie could have a different bottom so that it doesn't bunch up when you're sitting. Like, I think we've all taken that performance and active wear to heart and things like the cozy cloak. I think a lot about like robes, things you on the couch. My big dream, which I'll feel confident saying because i can't figure it out yet so if someone can you can hit me up is like to make a couch pillow that like you actually want to use as a pillow oh my gosh if i'm really watching netflix and laying like fully out i'll like bring my bed pillow i'm like same this is great and then my two pillows are kind of just like 
for looks. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if someone can really figure out this like side laying, that's like better than just having a bed pill at one bed pill. It makes me look like I'm 14 <laughs> years old, but like, it's, even if it's just like, Oh, let's make a cover that like, is kind of a trick. I see that as kind of a future of jammy stuff. It's like stuff that's really cozy on the inside. You can still wear it to work and get away with it. That's kind of that future thing that I think we need to like earn with our customers. Like everything jammies makes fits great. It's super comfy, lasts a long time. It's made as sustainably as, as that product can be made. And then we can earn like, Hey, it's a dress shirt with jammies fabric on the inside. Everyone's happy. Like I've been so into it and it's been so fun just to be with a lot of creative people that are like not afraid to launch a hoodie blanket with foot pockets. Um, and I think that's, that's made it fun to work on. Yeah. That's really awesome. Well, for anyone who has not checked out Jambies, I mean, I highly recommend the most comfy things I've ever worn. So yeah, nice job to you and your team for creating them. And it'll be really exciting to watch where you all go. So Andrew, thanks for hopping on here with us today and telling us all about your journey. Until next time, where can people learn more about you and Jambies? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't think there's that much more to learn about me, but I am on Twitter. I think it's Andrew L. Goble. My middle name's Lee. And best place to learn about Jambies, J-A-M-B-U-I-S dot com. I think we'll make we'll make like Mission 20 a code. I'll, yeah. I'll commit to that. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Done. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me on. It was awesome. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.